0: Good evening, everybody. So I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at uh, the London School of Economics. And it's uh, my pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker. But before I do so, I have a couple of announcements. So please turn your mobile phone on uh, silent. I ask that every time. And still, it happens now and then that somebody embarrasses him or herself quite a bit. Uh, But if you want to use twitter then the hashtag is LSE Helday, which is right there on the slide uh, the event is being recorded and if uh, the technique doesn't let us down we should make uh, the video available on the LSE events website and then after the lecture there will be some time for Q&A <coughs> so now let me turn to the more important part of my uh, my job this evening, let's introduce our speaker, Annie Haldane. So he's Chief Economist at uh, the Bank of England, where he's also a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. He has written on, uh, on lots of different topics in, uh, in economics, but uh, recently in particular on the financial sector. He's a fellow at uh, Nuffield College, Oxford. He's a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. And there's many more things on his CV, but I just want to highlight two things that I've experienced myself. So I've seen Andy in front of an audience of uh, you know, academics, professors, and doctors, and Andy's been very impressive, <coughs> but I've, helped, I've also seen him at the Quaker building on Euston Roads uh, at a meeting that was organized by Occupy London, and he was equally impressive. And so I think there's very few people in the world who can actually uh, now deal with both types of audiences. So we're very happy to have such a distinguished speaker, so please join me in welcoming him.
1: Thank you, Vauter. That's warm words. Um, Evening, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Um, I'm going to talk about productivity, um, as the title suggests. Um, There we go. So, quick quick show of hands. So, how many of you spend your evenings with friends discussing the UK's productivity problem? (laughs) Just just roughly. (laughs) (laughs) Roughly. You You in the back, sir. Very good. Thank you. Um, no, it, I, th- I mean, the, fact, the truth is, you tend not to have many friends. Uh, if, <laughs> if that's what you do of an evening. Um, it's not a riveting subject. Uh, it sounds technical, but it is technical, uh, but it matters. And that is uh, the theme of this evening. That, although it sounds technical and a bit dull... Uh, really does matter. Uh, In fact, um, few things in economics uh, matter more. So why do we say that? What is it that makes productivity uh, matter? Well, uh, one reason is because Paul Krugman says so. Um, So this is a a now uh, well-known, probably overused quote from Krugman, that I'm sure many of you will have seen. Productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, uh, it's almost everything. And it turns out, empirically, that is pretty much true. Let me show you a couple of pictures that speak to this being the case. Here's a, uh, it's a show-off chart, actually. I'm showing off with this chart. This is uh, GDP per head, and TFP, which is total factor productivity, productivity, back to 1 AD, right? It's a long time series. <laughs> back in 1 AD, statistical agencies were thin on the ground, let me tell you. So the, the numbers were even worse than they are today. Nonetheless, the broad pattern, the hockey stick patterns, are clear enough. Uh, The two, GDP and productivity, have moved pretty much uh, in lockstep over the long, long run. We can do something a bit more sophisticated to demonstrate why productivity matters. And this chart does that. Again, it's a longish time series, right back to the start of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, It looks at uh, GDP growth. And it decomposes it into the contribution from increases in the factor inputs in labour supply and in capital. And those are the green and the red bits here. Does this work? The pointer works. Though. And the bit that's left over, which is the efficiency with which those factor inputs are used. And that is what this thing, TFP, total factor productivity, uh, stands for. And it's the purple here. And the key takeaway is that looking over this long span, 250 years or so, the TFP bit, the productivity bit, accounts for the lion's share of growth, living standards, both on average and, indeed, its variation over time. So the Krugman conjecture looks historically, empirically, to be right. And, of course, that puts into rather sobering context (coughs) what has happened over the past few years. So this is a much, much shorter historical time span, just since the uh, middle of the 1990s. This is productivity in the UK now. Um, The blue is actual. The pink is a measure of the pre-crisis trend. That may or may not be a meaningful trend. Nonetheless, the key point here is that productivity, having relentlessly risen for actually many centuries, has over the course of the past decade or so flatlined. To such an extent that today it's tracking more than 20 percentage points below what it would have been had it continued on that pre crisis trend. This is a shocking thing to have happened and it is also a surprising thing to have happened. It certainly surprised us at the Bank of England and indeed pretty much every other mainstream forecaster of the economy on the planet. Here are some forecasts from the IMF of how they expected productivity to evolve since the crisis. They have been consistently over-optimistic about how quickly productivity growth might bounce back. So a tale of consistent and serial disappointment on the thing that matters most for long-term living standards. This really counts. So um, when we come to two of the great debates at the moment, in macroeconomics. This speaks to both of them. One of them is, have we entered a long-term era of so-called secular stagnation? Is that flatlining in productivity set to continue for the foreseeable future? The likes of uh, Bob Gordon and Larry Summers in the US have contended that we may indeed have entered this new epoch, this new era of so-called secular stagnation. On the other hand, there's a school of thought that says, far from that being the case, we may be instead on the cusp of a second machine age, a fourth industrial revolution. An era not of secular Stagnation, but rather of secular innovation. And the likes of Brynjolfsson and McAfee have written books making just that point. Who wins in this secular struggle between stagnation on the one hand and innovation on the other is crucial. Few things can be more important in determining the future of living standards at a global level. And it's not just about the size of the pie. A second great debate in macroeconomics right now is whether that pie, however large, has been equally divided. Are there signs of the world becoming less equal inequality at least within countries rising over time again a second huge debate and the key point here that I hope will come out this evening is that the key to both debates may lie in what happens next to productivity if that's true of the cause it's also prospectively true of the solution. If the problem lies in productivity, then so does the prospective solution to these two great debates about average size of the pie and how it is divided up. So uh, what are the plausible explanations that have been given for why it is we've had this period of subpar productivity, flatlining for at least a decade. Well, one, I won't say very much about tonight, is simply that this may be a statistical mirage. We are just not measuring it right these days. And with the rise of the digital economy, that has made the measurement problem even more acute than in the past. There is plainly something to this argument do I think it can plausibly account for all of that gap I showed you? I suspect not. And more importantly, most studies I've, I've read suggest not as well. What else? Well, you hear a lot uh, in the media about factors such as poor infrastructure, poor skills, low levels of investment, in laying low productivity. and I think there is some truth in those factors, too. Let me show you some pictures that speak to some of those. So here's uh, spending by the, uh, the public sector on investment in the UK. That is running relative to GDP at low levels historically and low levels relative to other countries. And that is having some consequences for the quality of the UK's infrastructure, And this right-hand side table speaks to a survey of how the UK ranks on different aspects of its infrastructure. For example, here, quality of roads. There are, according to the survey, uh, around 28 countries around the world that have better better road infrastructure uh, than the UK. That sounds a bit on the low side to me. But nonetheless, it does not paint... Uh, the best picture. What's true of uh, spending by government is true also of spending by private companies. It looks at R&D spending by a set of countries. The UK, which is this uh, purple line uh, here, is towards the bottom of the G7 league table when it comes to spending on research and development, which is likely to be a leading indicator of innovation, and ultimately, productivity. And finally, look at something like skills. Uh, Lots of aspects to that, of course. Lots of dimensions to skills. Here's one of my uh, favourite, or perhaps least favourite, pictures on that. It looks at uh, the level of uh, financial literacy, numeracy in the UK, relative to other countries. It's drawn from a recent OECD study. Uh, That ranks the UK measured red here, as 24th uh, in the OECD. That's out of 24. Um, <laughs> occupying a position here j- just above um, Albania, um, uh, which is interesting you know, for, for one of the world's premier international financial uh, centres. So probably work here to be done. Does this fully account for the UK's lowly position? Probably not. Probably not. Not least because these trends are of very long standing. These aren't new things. Okay, Uh, so what else might we look towards as candidate explanations? I've listed a few here. The crisis has almost certainly caused some scarring to companies. Their willingness to invest. That may have laid low productivity. Um, That's this factor here. Uh, regulation, and monetary policy, it might be my fault. It might be my fault. Maybe me as a monetary policymaker, uh, uh, the root cause of the productivity problems that have been mentioned. For example, for example, by keeping alive zombie companies, who ought really to have failed. If you like, policymakers may be standing in the way of Schumpeterian creative destruction of low productivity firms. I'm going to show you some evidence that speaks to that proposition very precisely. To what extent is it Andy's fault that productivity is as low as as it has been? It could be failures of competition. Perhaps that's uh, gummed things up. Perhaps that's um, resulted in slower innovation than we would have liked. Maybe it's poor management. Maybe it's the the process of diffusion of innovation to other companies has slowed down for whatever reason. I want to wander you through some data that won't formally test these explanations, but will shed light, I hope, on which of them appears to be more or less plausible. In making sense of these productivity trends that I've shown you, what sort of data? Well, a whole set of things a bit of history, a bit of international data, but particularly a focus on some very micro data on UK companies, looking at thousands and tens of thousands, in fact, of UK companies and seeing what the information on them can tell us plausibly, about why it is productivity in the UK may have slowed as much as it has. So that's the plan. Show you a whole raft of data, and you can, yourselves, reach your own conclusion on which of the explanations I've mentioned make most sense given that data. Let's start with history. Again, this is back to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, I've divided up here a measure of productivity into the contribution from building up capital over time, so-called capital deepening, more plant, more machines, more buildings. That's green. That's Sorry, that's red. And the contribution from this TFP thing, the efficiency with which that capital is put to work in companies. And that decomposition shows you roughly speaking that both have made uh, a broadly equal contribution to productivity over time and both have contributed to this fall off in productivity towards the end of the sample. If we zoom in uh, on the green bit on this total factor productivity bit which is what this does, the pink line here. Uh, we see some quite interesting things. Obviously, um, it's an undulating pattern. Uh, We can divide up the sample, if you like, into not one, but three industrial revolutions. The, The one in the middle of the 18th century, the one in the middle of the 19th century, and the one in the middle of the 20th century. And broadly speaking, with a lag we've seen this measure of productivity pick up after the dawn of each of those industrial revolutions. That lag between inventions and pick up in productivity has often been quite lengthy. After the first industrial revolution in the 18th century, it took perhaps 70, 80, 100 years for that to show up in the productivity numbers. If we fast forward to the industrial revolutions of the 19th and 20th century, that diffusion lag (coughs) from invention to productivity has shortened somewhat. Perhaps it's been around 20 or 30 years. And I'll come back to that diffusion point uh, as we go through the presentation. Nonetheless... What this clearly shows is this diving off at the end. A return to levels of productivity growth in the UK that were last seen in the 18th century. This has been, if not a unique, then at least a very unusual period over the most recent past. So has the UK itself been unusual relative to other countries. Well, let's look and see internationally. Here's a table of productivities in the G7 countries. These numbers are fairly well known. The UK doesn't rank especially high in the G7 league table. It's numbers like these that lead to the media writing things like, you know, it takes a British worker until Friday to do what it takes a French worker to do by uh, Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Around 30% higher productivity in France than in um, the UK. Nonetheless, if we look at growth in productivity globally, and that's what this picture does, what we see uh, is a downward trend globally. This has not been remotely a UK-specific phenomenon. Between 1950 and 1980, productivity growth globally was around 2% per year, give or take. Since 1980, it's averaged less than half percent year by year. And that tells us two things. One, this is a genuinely global phenomenon, a global slowdown, not a UK-specific one. And two, this slowdown long precedes the global financial crisis. This is not just a story of crisis-related scarring of companies. This is also not just a story of advanced economies. This breaks it down as between advanced and emerging economies, the pattern, while volatile, is common to both. Both advanced and emerging economies have suffered from this productivity malaise. So what's going on? Why do we think that has happened at a global level? In particular, has the cause been slower innovation among countries operating at the frontier, technologically, like the US, or has it instead been the results? of slower rates of diffusion of those innovations to other countries that are running behind? Has it been slower innovation or slower diffusion of that innovation that has caused this global productivity slowdown? Well, this chart speaks to that. It measures productivity for all countries, green, for advanced economies, blue, and for emerging markets, pink, relative to a frontier country, which for these purposes I'll take to the U.S. Now between the 1950s and the 1980s, catch-up was happening. Productivity in the non-frontier countries was catching up with the frontier country, the United States. And that's pretty much what macro theory would tell us ought to happen. That you borrow ideas from the frontier country, import them, and that helps you grow faster and catch up with that frontier country. And that, indeed, was a story of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Interestingly, though, it has not been the story of the 80s, 90s, and noughties. That process of catch-up and convergence looks to have stalled. This flatlines over the course of the past several decades. We can quantify this stalling uh, empirically, and that's what this does. It measures, it's an estimate of the pace of convergence of non-frontier countries with the frontier country, technologically, taken here to be the US. So back in the 80s, um, back in the 80s, if you had a 10 percentage point gap between your productivity and that in the US, on average, you would grow by about uh, 0.8 percentage points uh, quicker than the US in productivity terms. You'd be catching up. Convergence was happening. Fast forward to the end of the sample, and now as of today, that catch up, that convergence process has effectively ground to a halt. We had a story five minutes ago about the diffusion lags of innovation having shortened over time yet this evidence suggests just the opposite having happened internationally over the course of the last several decades. The rate of diffusion of ideas, of knowledge, of production processes has if anything slowed down. The diffusion engine cross-border appears to have stalled despite the fact that flows of people, flows of money and capital, flows of goods and services have been on a secularly rising trend over this same period. This, if anything, adds to the productivity puzzle. Let's turn then from international to domestic, to try and begin to make sense of what might be going on here. I want to draw upon a couple of databases, big databases, comprising, as I mentioned earlier on, tens of thousands uh, of UK companies, and slice and dice this data to try and make sense of what might be going uh, on. One thing we do with this data is to draw pictures of the distribution of productivity across companies at a point in time. And this chart shows the picture of that distribution of productivity across companies in 2014. What does it show? Well, two key points. There is this thin, long upper tail of high... Productivity companies. Frontier companies, if you like. Second feature is this short, fat, lower tail of low productivity companies. This is, if you like, a tail of two companies. Frontier companies whose productivity is high and non-frontier companies whose productivity is low. How has this distribution evolved over time. Well, this is hard. Let's focus on perhaps the, the left-hand side picture here. This takes different percentiles of that distribution. This is the top 10% of companies by productivity. Uh, this is the, the bottom uh, quartiles, uh, bottom 25% of companies. And what this shows is not only a tale of two companies, frontier companies here, non-frontier companies down here, but of a widening divergence between their, in their fortunes. A widening gap between the productivity performance of the frontier companies and that of the long tail of laggards. So, Here's another p- uh, window on the same world. Frontier companies in pink, defined as the top 5% of companies in productivity terms. That has continued to grow apace at around 6% per year. Secular innovation is here. Bryn Jolfsen and McAfee are right. Secular innovation exists among this frontier set sort of companies but so too does secular stagnation because for around a third or perhaps a major half of companies, productivity has stood still over the past two decades. Secular stagnation has coexisted with secular innovation. These are not competing <coughs> hypotheses. They are complementary hypotheses, both are there in the data, albeit at different points in the company distribution. And if we asked ourselves the question, what is causing the U.K.'s productivity problem, the answer is not slowing innovation. it is slower rates of diffusion of that innovation to the long tail of U.K companies. As for countries, it is a diffusion story, a broken diffusion engine story, rather than an innovation story that accounts for the productivity puzzle. So next obvious question, well actually before I get to that, um, is the UK an outlier in this respect? To what extent is this tale of a long tail? of companies stagnating, specific or unique to the UK? Well, the answer there is it's not unique, it's not specific, but it is more acute here in the UK than it is in most, if not all, other advanced economies. Here's a measure uh, of that dispersion in the distribution. Uh, In the UK, yellow and a bunch of other countries... It is materially larger in both services and manufacturing in the UK than elsewhere. That long tail of stagnating companies is true the world over, but particularly true here in the UK. So, why might that be? Next question Why might that be? Why is it here? we suffer from this long-tail malaise more than is the case elsewhere. Let me do some slicing and dicing of the data to try and get underneath the skin of why this might be the case. Why this long and lengthening tail and why the UK more than elsewhere. One story, one I mentioned earlier on, is management. Perhaps it's the case that management processes and management practices here in the UK are materially worse than those in other countries. Uh, John Van Rienen used to be here at the LSE and did some important work measuring what is hard to measure. That is to say the management competence of companies And he was kind of to lend us his data, which we applied to our sample. And it does tell a story of management failings having contributed to this longer UK tale than elsewhere. So on his index of management competence, a one standard deviation rise in competence raises the productivity of UK companies by around 10%, which is a chunky gain from management alone. What else? What else might account for this long tail, this tail of low productivity in a lengthening tail of companies? Well, one story might be a regional story. Perhaps it's the case that that long tail resides in particular regions in the UK, So the upper tail might be, and the London, the southeast. The lower tail might be regions that are failing in productivity terms. To what extent is that true? And the answer is not really at all. Not really at all. What is true is that on average productivity in some regions is higher than in others. Productivity here in London is fully 75% higher than the lowest productivity region in the UK, which is the northeast. Nonetheless, if you look at the the pictures, the distributions, what is striking regionally are not the differences, but the similarities. Every region in the UK has these high-performing frontier companies. That upper tail. They also all have... This fat lower tail of low productivity companies. So whatever is driving this, this is not a region-specific story mainly. And nor is it a sector-specific story. This carves the data not by region, but by different sectors. There are some differences between sectors. Now that's a striking thing, from this picture are not the differences across sector, but the similarities. Every sector has this same pattern, a fat upper tail of high productivity companies and a long lower tail of underperforming companies. And that's true right across the piece. If we switch from sectoral decomposition, to looking at how externally facing companies are. However, we begin to get underneath the skin of something more striking. This divvies up companies according to whether they export or not. And here we begin to see some important differences between those that do and those that don't. On average a difference of around a third in levels of productivity. If you run a regression of export share on productivity across those tens of thousands of companies, you find a pretty big effect. If a company, on average, (coughs) raises its share of exports by around 10 percentage points, that boosts its productivity by around 3%. So the more export-oriented a company, the higher its productivity. And that's true even more strikingly if we look at those set of companies that are foreign-owned. That's orange here. Domestic-owned blue, foreign-owned orange. The productivity of these companies, the orange companies, the foreign-owned companies, is fully twice that of domestically run companies. Those companies exporting, exposed to external competition, and those companies with foreign ownership are more likely to be integrated into global supply chains, facing global competition. And that is mirrored in systematically higher levels of productivity in those companies. If nothing else, this lays bare the importance to the UK, of openness to trade and openness to foreign direct investment in driving the fortunes of productivity and therefore living standards in this country. Another couple of data. This looks at the uh, degree to which companies innovate. Surprise, surprise. Those that spend more on new products and processes have, on average, higher levels of productivity, and one last cut of the data. This divvies up companies according to their (coughs) size, small, medium, uh, and large. The UK loves uh, small companies, as we all know. There are lots of them. But looking at the productivity picture, they are a bit of a mixed blessing. So small companies here are in blue. There is a large lower tail of small companies who do not fare well. In fact, a number of them have negative levels of productivity, which is a bad news story. There is, however, a good news story is that there's also uh, an upper tail of small companies who are doing well, who are high productivity. And what's more, if you look at their growth rates, their productivity growth rates, on average, smaller companies do grow faster than the larger ones. So both good and bad news simultaneously. But how am I do for time about it? Shall I stop? It's up to you. Ten minutes? Ten minutes. Let me uh, turn in the time left to two things. I'm going to talk a bit about the impact of monetary policy on it. I mentioned at the beginning that one explanation is that monetary policy makers had slowed down the rate of creative destruction, and thereby had a negative impact on productivity. We can use these data to begin to test that hypothesis. To what extent has monetary policy fattened that lower tail of companies, the zombies, if you like, in ways that have held back productivity growth? So here's the um, experiment... So imagine that instead of interest rates in the UK being at their current level of a quarter of a percent, imagine that we'd held them at their level just before the crisis struck. What impact would that have had on companies and on their productivity? In particular, how might it have affected their so-called interest cover ratio, in other words, their, their ability to cover their interest payments with their profits. So I'm going to make an assumption about what happens to companies when they can't cover their interest payments with their profits. I'm going to assume they go bust. Okay. So my, my uh, assumption is that if a company cannot meet its interest payments with profits, it goes bust. And I can figure out how many extra companies would have gone bust had interest rates been held at four and a quarter percent rather than being lowered to a quarter of a percentage point? Do that firm by firm. Who would have gone bust and what impact would that have had on aggregate productivity? Would a weeding out of the zombies of the low productivity firms have provided a big kick-up to productivity uh, or not? Well, one reason to be a bit sceptical is shown in this picture. This looks at the relationship between a company's borrowings, its leverage, and its productivity. And this shows a U-shaped pattern. By which I mean it it shows that um, there's a complex relationship between how much debt a company has and its performance. There is this tale of low productivity companies with high debts. That's probably because they have low profits, a low repayment capacity, and therefore rack up debts that are too large. Equally, there are some very high productivity companies that also have high leverage. That's probably because their profits are high. Their borrowing capacity is high and therefore their leverage uh, is high. I put this up here because this suggests the impact of higher rates is ambiguous. Higher interest rates hit both sets of companies. The high leverage zombies here, but also the high leverage gazelles over there. The net effect of that is ambiguous. It depends on the data. It's an empirical question. So what do the data suggest is the net effect, therefore, if both types of companies, zombies and gazelles, are being hit? Here's what it suggests. Well, first of all, that four percentage point rise in rates causes around 10% of companies to not be able to meet their interest payments with their profits. Ten percent, therefore, go bust. That's a lot. Some of those companies are low productivity, the Zombies. Some are high productivity, the Gazelles. The net effect, if you do it firm by firm by firm, is to boost productivity by around one or two percent the zombie effect, offsets the gazelle effect. One or two percent, definitely worth having. Definitely worth having. But is this the entirety of the UK's productivity problem? Uh, It is not. It is not. And at what cost would this have come? Well, ten percent of companies going bust. Uh, That's a hit to jobs, of around one and a half million. So what you are gaining on the swings, one or two percent on productivity, you are losing on the roundabouts to the tune of one and a half million jobs. And I can say to you, as a monetary policymaker, faced with that trade-off, there is no way on God's earth I would have chosen that path. That is not a price I would have willingly paid for an extra percentage point or two of productivity. Others may have made different choices, but for this policymaker, the choice that was made was probably the right one, given that terms of trade, the calibrated terms of trade that I have mentioned. Um, Let me finish off, uh, because I want to get to some questions about the so what question. So um, I've laid out lots of data, I've sliced and diced it every which way to try and make sense of some of the drivers, the characteristics of firms. What is it that sits beneath this productivity puzzle? And I've told a story of a long and lengthening tale of stagnating companies where the cause of that stagnation is a combination of factors of which monetary policy has played some, I would argue, albeit relatively modest role, but so too are factors like uh, management or management uh, failings. And slow too, more generally, has a slower rate of diffusion than in the past of new innovations, through to that long productivity tail. So what's been done? Well, there's a set of things that government are doing or have announced. Uh, A few weeks ago, we had a green paper from the government on a so-called industrial strategy, the pillars (laughs) that they'd look to to boost productivity in the UK in future. That contained a set of, I think, very good ideas. Um, there is an inquiry underway, a review underway, to how best we finance those gazelles. Is adequate finance available to them to scale up over time? The initiative I thought I'd mention, which speaks most directly to what I've discussed this morning, is one by uh, Charlie Mayfield, who's the, the chairman of John Lewis. He set up Uh, Last year, this Productivity Commission, one of its proposals was that they'd create an app, a means by which companies could begin to benchmark their own productivity relative to others in their sector or in their region. Why is that a good idea? Well, um, a bit like uh, US car owners who, on average, all think they're above-average drivers. The same is probably true of companies. They all think that they... They may suspect they're all above-average productivity-wise. Well, in fact, we know from that distribution earlier on that the opposite is true. More of them are below-average than above-average. And what this app will do is enable them to benchmark themselves to ask the question, where do I sit? How am I doing both absolutely and relatively to others, other businesses a bit like mine as a potential catalyst for doing better in future? Indeed, the Mayfield Commission has given, will give companies some, uh, some access to online services to enable them over time to boost their levels of productivity, to increase the rate of diffusion, if you like, of new innovation to this long tail. You can become more imaginative. With a friend, I've been thinking through the possibility of creating a platform, an online platform, a virtual environment in which companies can simulate their business, the throughput in their business, the process by which inputs translate into outputs to examine how might their production processes be changed, be improved in a virtual environment rather than a real environment as a conduit for generating improvements to those processes and innovations over time. Lots of possibilities. You may have better ideas than me. These are some of those that are cooking right now. Let me wind up, because I've overrun my time. The big story, productivity-wise, is of a long tail. And of all the things that could be done, policy-wise, measures for me that spoke that long tail would be the most useful. There's a natural gravitational pull towards... Those new shiny companies, those in the frontier, seeding the next Tesla, seeding the next Google. And of course that's tempting, but in terms of the raw arithmetic of productivity, a much greater benefit would come from lifting the spirits, if only a bit, of that long, fat tail of companies. Were you to boost the performance of the lowest three quartiles of companies to the levels of the quartile above, that by itself would boost UK productivity by the order of 13%. We'd be up there, rivaling France and German levels of productivity. When it comes to our own Olympic athletes, one of the big lessons that was taken away from their success was the importance of small, incremental improvements over time. Not great leaps into the unknown, not leaping to the moon, not seeking to be on the frontier instantly, but small, incremental improvements. If that same ethos, that same approach, was applied to companies internationally, but especially here in the UK the UK itself could become a world-beater in company terms. And that would help speak to those huge macro debates with which I started this presentation. Vata, let me stop there. Thank Thank you.
0: So now there's some time for Q&A. I only have uh, one request. Just wait until one of the stewards gets you the microphone so we can all hear your questions and I- ideally be concise.
1: We're up top first. We're up here.
0: Hi. Uh, hello. Hi, I'm Ramin. I teach
1: economics at King's College London. My question is at the global level uh, about the productivity difference, you know, failure of developing countries to catch up uh, what are the possible hypotheses for that? Why developing countries are not as
2: effective as before in copying and catching up?
1: Yeah. Should we collect a few questions and, um, and then come, take them in batches? Let's stay at the top. We'll go there in the middle. Uh, two two, two the top, on the bo- uh, top row.
0: Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, going to the UK more specifically and the diffusion process, uh, what sort of balance do you think is between inaction from the laggards and actually having that sort of innovation available to be diffused by the laggards? Yeah. Thank you. Um,
2: having a speaker called uh, Haldane uh, come and visit um, brings evolution biology to mind. So if I can ask a question with an evolutionary um, flavor, you're probably aware that um, Adam Perkins... Uh, has suggested that welfare policies um, are having the effect of encouraging what you might say that are the less productive people to have more children. Um, I think that, roughly speaking, echoes something that was said by Sir Keith Joseph uh, many years ago. Um, to what extent do you think that could, to give an credence to the idea that that could have a long-term impact on productivity?
1: Okay. Uh, Shall we take those three? Um, so... Um, on candidate explanations uh, for why emerging markets, or indeed some advanced economies uh, may have, uh, if not drifted further behind, not caught up uh, in the way we might uh, expect. I mean, there are some explanations uh, I touched upon earlier on. You could tell, and some have told, including Paul Krugman, uh, an antitrust story, uh, a competition story, uh, whereby, you know, those countries generating the ideas, um, uh, then place some restrictions, for example, through uh, IP or patents on those ideas uh, in a way that uh, holds back uh, their replication or adoption elsewhere. I doubt that's the whole story, but I can well believe uh, it is part of it. So... um, I think when um, restriction periods on patents and, uh, and uh, IP more generally, uh, when they were devised, uh, it was with an eye to how long would it take for the company innovating to get a payback on their investment, on their sunk cost. Because without that, who would pay the sunk cost in the first place? But I think the time lag for payback, which is relevant 20 years ago, is very different than the time period for payback today. Uh, In a globalised economy, we can sell your idea, your product, to the whole world. Uh, Payback may well be much faster. And therefore, the case for shortening the period of restrictions on patents and IP might be uh, weaker. So I think that may well be some of the story. I suspect part of it, though, is that divvying up the world in a nation-state way, in a country way, might these days not be so sensible. Uh, A different way of divvying up the economy or the world is between those factors of production that operate in global markets and those that just operate uh, domestically. And that's true of the market for skills, the market for people, uh, the market for companies, the market for cities and the market for countries. And that, that slicing and dicing of the cake and a, and a widening divergence between the fortunes of globalised factors and localised factors might go way towards explaining this widening divergence or the failure to catch up across countries. Those are conjectures, but those would be, I think, consistent with the evidence I've shown you uh, here. So up here, the question was about... Um, uh, the laggards and what might be, uh, what might be done. Um, so uh, I think this is about um, uh, the rates at which new innovations or even old technologies uh, are penetrating that long tail of companies. In other words, more slowly than one would wish, and perhaps even more slowly than has been the case in uh, the past. Why might that be? Well, some of it uh, might be about uh, the culture within organisations, management practices within organisations. I mentioned earlier on John Van Vreenen's work, which points towards that being an important factor as, as gen- in generating that long tail of UK uh, companies. In particular, his work points towards... Um, Problems, productivity problems in family-owned companies, specifically where management control passes down not just to any family member, but to the eldest son. In those cases, rather than family-owned companies generally being a productivity problem, which doesn't appear to be the case, it's those where primogeniture kicks in that have a particular problem. I think there is something something in that. There is something in the fact that the global financial crisis uh, has generated an increased degree of risk aversion. People's willingness willingness to make that investment, to scale up technologically, has, I think, been held back uh, by... Uh, the crisis and reduced rates of penetration from the frontier to the tail. There comes a point, here's here's my metaphor. Imagine you're running a a marathon, long distance race, okay. Uh, As long as you are at the bottom, at the end of the leading pack, things are okay. You're You're at the back of the pack, but you're still in the pack. Imagine what happens when you suddenly detach from that pack. There's a widening divergence between the leader and you detached from the pack. We know what happens in that situation. Your incentives to ever get back to the pack are diminished very significantly. I think that is also some of the story about why we see this widening divergence between the long tail of laggards and those frontier companies. They are disappearing into the distance and ever reaching that frontier looks diminishingly remote as a possibility. That widening divergence might itself have served as a disincentive to the non frontier companies forever catching up. And finally, on the, well, the final question, was up here. Um, I have no relation, as far as I know, genetically with, 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 with the, uh, the scientist. Um, uh, unfortunately, I've looked long and hard, but my gene pool is much uh, shallower. Um, um, uh, but your point spoke to your what to do with the long tail uh, be it of people or of companies uh, and some people say to me well why not chop off that long tail you know they're underperforming they should ship up or, you know, or, or uh, and, and the problem here is is that um, that is not the tail it's the dog almost all the companies are there you can't cut them all off there'll be no jobs left so you have to work with what you have and the returns to working with what you have are enormous particularly large in the UK and if public policy could have a larger focus on that long tail it would for me yield huge Dividends for our performance as a country—it's not the natural habitat of some policies and some politicians. But for me, all the action is there. Think another round. Take one here. We'll go downstairs now. Here, here, and over here. Let's start here, shall we? Near, near the mic.
3: Well, a conjectural question: What is the likely effect of Brexit on UK productivity? Oh, a Brexit question.
1: Thank you. Um, Thank you. Uh, Let's hear a thing. Thank you. Hello. Um, It was very interesting to see the charts on uh, UK companies. Uh, I wonder, in countries which are more productive than we are, does the distribution look markedly different, or is it just shifted along in terms of productivity? Right. And if they have different distributions, what would you attribute that to? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and there was, where should we go? Let's go here. I'm flicking. Oh, hi. Yeah, just wait for. a,
2: yeah, a
1: question on uh, demography.
2: So if productivity is output per worker, countries that have, say, more migration or higher birth rates, higher population growth, how does that affect it? So, for example, I know in the U.S., for example, it's been argued that Movement of labor has allowed companies not necessarily
1: to mechanize. Um, so I just want you to just think. About, and Piketty talked about demography a lot. So, okay. So should we take this three? Two of which, you know, so, so um, th- there's usually a, you can guarantee in a Q&A at least um, two career-threatening questions, um, and we've got them t- two here. Uh, your Brexit and immigration, you know, topics. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say. Must speak for quite a long time and say absolutely nothing because that's um, <laughs> what I do for a living. Um, the um, so uh, to hear in Brexit, I mean, uh, what to say? It all depends. Uh, it does all depend. Uh, I mean, the fact is, uh, I, I, I've hopefully underscored tonight uh, the importance of openness, both in a trade sense, an export sense, and in an openness to foreign direct investment. In terms of foreign firm, firm ownership, twice as productive as domestically run firms. Higher exports, higher productivity. That screams from the data. Uh, so you would hope that, um, that both of those features were preserved, ideally enhanced, in a post uh, Brexit world. In some ways, they will be one of the arbiters by which we judge. Success Is the UK still seen as a good place to come and do business? To be the recipient of foreign direct investment? Given the kicker that provides to domestic productivity, is the UK still exporting possibly different markets on as large a scale as it has been uh, currently? Because that too provides a significant kicker to productivity? Both of those are open questions. It will depend on negotiations and it takes two to tango. In other words, whatever we want as a country, it depends every bit as much on what the other side of the table wants to. So we will see where the negotiations lead, but this evidence underlines the importance of those two features to our fortunes as a, uh, as a country. Um, So um, on the question uh, of dispersion here, uh, this chart is meant to speak to that. So the OECD have done some fantastic work, very similar to the work I've done, uh, looking at a huge panel of companies globally. It's drawn those distribution pictures. It turns out most countries on the planet have a similar sort of shape distribution. They too have a thin upper tail of frontier high-performing, high-productivity companies and a fat lower tail of stagnators. Okay, So in that sense, we're in good-slash-bad company. It's a global problem, not a UK problem. Uh, and that's the source of them talking about the diffusion engine somehow having broken down from frontier to laggard. But, it's an important but, uh, the situation the fatness of the tails are larger in the UK than is the case, and that's what this speaks to. The yellow line here is the degree of dispersion in that distribution uh, for services and for manufacturing UK yellow, other countries uh, in other uh, colours, and strikingly, especially in services, the UK is something of an outlier. These numbers came Uh, Half the press, about five days ago, uh, and they tell a pretty striking story. Uh, So there are some UK uh, specificities in here, and I offered one or two explanations for why that might be. For example, management. Going back to John Van Rienen's work, he points to this being a more acute problem in the UK than in other countries, where he also surveyed and measured their management competence. And then finally on uh, population uh, and immigration. The only point I would make there is that there is evidence uh, that um, one of the mechanisms by which innovation propagates, by which technology diffuses, is by flows of people. Between job, between firm, between country. Uh, Because they take their ideas, their experience, their management practices and management processes with them. One of the reasons why productivity in the UK and in other countries might have slowed down since the dawn of the global financial crisis is that flows of people between firms have slowed down. People have been more reluctant to move between jobs the rate of so-called labour market churn has diminished. And people not moving probably means ideas, innovation, management processes and practices not diffusing as rapidly as has been the case in the past. That's true across firms. It's also probably true across countries. So when there are flows of labour across borders, not always, but sometimes, those immigrants are bringing different skills and different ideas with them <coughs> that might enhance productivity of domestic firms. The evidence does speak to that being an important mechanism by which innovation propagates and productivity picks up. Right. You just tell me I want to stop, Vauta, yeah? Just go. Right. Take, we'll take... Um, let's go back up top. We'll take the two here. All male questions so far, so I'd yeah. quite like to be a bit more diverse.
2: Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, I have a question about Austrian Austrian School of Economics, just here. Yep. <laughs> um, LSE's own F.A. Hayek, amongst others, um, and their theory that no group of policymakers, be it monetary or fiscal, you know, they have the whole the whole knowledge in society. There is such thing as a division of knowledge. And and basically that goes at odds with the whole concept that there can be a policy centrally planned. My question to you would be, are you willing to accept that possibility? What would you have to see in order to agree with that? And then what would your action plans as part of the MPC be if you are convinced that with the Austrian concept rather than the mainstream. Thank you. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, It's a male question, but I have a question about females. Uh, Also on the demographic uh, subject, I was surprised that the subject of uh, female participation rates and the boost that that gave to GDP wasn't mentioned. And then what I think is an unrelated question. I'm wondering if the measurement of productivity, depending on GDP, uh, isn't missing consumer surplus and maybe innovation is uh, accruing to consumers and therefore not showing up in productivity that way.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think one
3: more.
1: Ideally, not a man...
3: I'm looking down, up, up. Ah, thank you.
0: Well, I wouldn't say this is a female question, but since (laughs) a female said it, um, no, thank you. Um, My question would be: of course, you're dividing productivity of of firms. It would it be possible to consider that maybe in some? in some baskets of firms, some are more limited in others in terms of how productive they could possibly be in terms of, I don't know, like technology or just like dying industries or something like that. Is that like a limit or is that ever brought into consideration yeah. when you're doing your analysis?
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so I think there are... Let me the third question uh, first. So, uh, no, I think there are limits. Uh, the... Maybe be more binding and acute in some sectors and in some industries than others. I think that is true. Um, for example, you might argue that, I don't know, uh, a sector like um, uh, construction or even parts of service sector might be less amenable to quantum leaps forward in productivity um, than in manufacturing. Uh, I think there is something to that. Uh, but the striking thing is that uh, when you do slice up the cake, as I did, by sectors, there are some differences, but still within each sector, there's this same pattern. So, and, and this helps bridge the first question, actually, because the question was, um, you know, do policymakers know enough to do good in this situation uh, rather than uh, doing ill? I mean, the, the Austrian perspective, or one, one dimension of it, Uh, is that the extent of um, uncertainty, uh, of ignorance out there is very considerable, and therefore we need to be conscious and humble about how we apply our policies, not assume too much knowledge. I think that's an entirely uh, reasonable, important point when it comes to the setting of any public policy. I think, uh, however, when it comes to the issue we're discussing tonight. Um, so a month ago, two months ago, I visited, as often do, uh, some companies uh, down in the, uh, in the West Country. So I go around the regions, visit companies all the time, ask them about their business. Um, I visit two companies, they're producing the same thing. Uh, I visit company one, uh, it's cider in both cases, Uh, Company one, uh, they have robots. They have big factories with robots and not many people. The people are highly skilled. They're long machines and short uh, humans. They're highly productive, highly skilled workforce, high profits, high productivity. You travel no more than 20 miles to a company producing the same thing. It is... Long people, short machines and robots. Its workforce are low skilled. It has low profitability. It has low productivity. That is a gap that can be bridged. You don't need to be a genius, you don't need omniscience to say, can't there be some learning by doing between those two companies? some partnering, some mentoring that allows best practice, or at least good practice, to be diffused down from company one to company two. Your role as policymaker might be to do no more than point that out and perhaps facilitate that knowledge transfer from company one to company two. The Mayfield Commission I mentioned is very much in the spirit of catalyzing that technology and information transfer. It doesn't require superhuman (coughs) knowledge of productivity or companies, or even more knowledge that the companies themselves have. Just a closing of the gap between frontier and laggard could make a, a big difference, not setting policy, but facilitating policy between companies. Um, and the last question.
2: So, participation and consumer
1: surplus. Yeah, so, second, uh, very possibly, people have looked at this. I mean, you're right, um, this may show up uh, not in companies' bottom lines, but in uh, the, uh, the welfare of the citizens. Uh, consuming these products that often these days, as you know, come for free. I'm um, by no means the expert on this, but those that are experts have looked at just this question. It certainly gets you some of the way to solving the puzzle, but by no means all of the way towards solving the puzzle. And finally, on female participation, one of the very good news story stories here in the UK has been the increased participation uh, of females in uh, the workplace, in the jobs market over the past several years. The same is true actually uh, among males as well. Uh, So more males staying on in the workforce for a longer period, more women returning to the workforce, in some cases uh, later in their careers. This has been Uh, one of the best news stories in the UK over the past several years. It has generated extra jobs and it's generated extra jobs without generating upwards pressure on prices (coughs) in ways that enabled us to keep interest rates low. So this has been unambiguously uh, a good news story for UK growth. Great. Last two two more and then stop. Three more and then stop. Where should we go? Uh, Let's go here in the middle. Those two. two. And then one one at the bottom. Who wants to go last?
0: I'll pick one of these ones. Why aren't the laggards incentivized to improve their performance? or why is there not sufficient incentive in the system for them to improve their performance?
1: Yeah.
0: Hi, I just had a question. It just links to um, increased female participation in the labour force. Um, And you mentioned earlier about uh, mismeasurement. Do these statistics relate to output per worker or output per hour worked? Because if you compare the UK to the rest of Europe, we have a much, much higher share of part-time work. So that's one question. Um, And the other question that I had, looking at your graph of R&D, the UK is at the lower end of the spectrum in relation to Europe, Uh, private R&D, and I had a question just in regards to, you know, do we know uh, what's driving that? Is it, for example, related to um, the governance structure of firms and short-termism?
3: Yep. Yep.
1: Thank you. One more down here, then we'll all go to the pub. (laughs) Uh, Let's go here. Sorry. NVIDIA's choice.
3: Uh, Yes. Um, I'm surprised you just, you never mentioned the issue of labour market flexibility. Um, I, I worked uh, on industrial analysis for well before I retired, ten years, uh, seven years ago, <clears throat> for the U.S. Congress, and um, both in cross-national comparison and also within certain sectors in the U.S., namely autos and, and steel, um, we found sort of um, uh, much higher rates of innovation and industrial uptake. Uh, and superior um, performance um, in um, sectors of the economy um, within uh, w- where there was greater labor market flexibility, mm-hmm. and frankly lower rates of unionization. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you, and you didn't even mention that subject, which I was a little surprised at in in in, in your analysis. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Uh so let's uh, let's go backwards. So um I didn't and, and apologies um wasn't able to call every base tonight, but you're right the, the the labor flexibility I think there's certainly something prospectively um uh in uh that. It it's not always unidirectional, of course. So uh, the UK is generally speaking felt to have a pretty flexible uh labor uh market. Um uh And one of the byproducts of that over the past few years in particular is that it has held down uh, wage growth uh, despite the pretty rapid rises uh, in employment. Uh, So if you like, the the Phillips curve has flattened. The pressure on jobs hasn't provided a kicker up in uh, wages. And some have argued, I think with some validity, that uh, that has served as a disincentive for companies to invest in capital, to invest rather than just sucking in larger amounts of relatively cheap labour. So there's a situation where labour market flexibility might actually get in the way uh, of boosting, productivity, at least in the short run, uh, greater employment, lower capital, of things equal, uh, lower uh, productivity but in general the points you make about structural rigidities in the economy generally and their impact on productivity must be, must be right I think will be consistent with, or not, not inconsistent with anything I've said uh, this evening. Up the top um, so you're asking about um, uh, why aren't the laggards incentivised to do somewhat better? I don't have uh, a great answer to that, I'm not sure I've got any answer Uh, to that. One thing I would say is that these companies in the main uh, are not failing in the traditional sense. They are earning just enough to wash their face, to keep the wolf from the door, to pay their workers and to pay their debts, but not much more uh, than that. Um, uh, Could that be a uh, a cultural thing, a management thing. It's just a lack of uh, ambition or, or desire to, uh, to, to scale up, and possibly uh, possibly so. Uh, I don't have a full answer, but some of those management issues I mentioned earlier on, I think, are, uh, are relevant to at least some sectors, some of the less competitive sectors. And some of the structure of governance issues I mentioned... I think, also have a role to play. Does that fully account for it? I suspect uh, probably, uh, probably not. Exposure to competition plainly is playing a role, and the evidence for exporters exposed to international competition you know, lays bare some of the benefits that would come from uh, that enhanced competition. That, and that bridges the last point, uh, which, was, which was actually two points. The first of which was how is productivity to be measured, uh, heads or hours. We've done it every which way, including per hour. It doesn't fundamentally change uh, the story that gets told about what is uh, going on. Um, but on your second point about R&D, and why is the UK might be towards the bottom of the league table, might that tell us something about uh, companies' willingness to put money aside for tomorrow uh, by restraining, for example, uh, dividend payments or payouts to executives. Uh, I think there is certainly something important in that hypothesis, that short-termism hypothesis. It is the case that if you take two companies, uh, one publicly owned, having to meet its quarterly targets, having to meet the needs of investors and a broadly equivalent company that is in private hands, the second will on average invest two, two and a half times that of the first. There is something about public companies that is serving as a constraint on their willingness to invest in tomorrow, to invest today for tomorrow. I think that shows up in R&D ultimately shows up in productivity. And if we're asking me for three wishes for how to make the situation better, one of them would be a more root and branch reform of corporate governance in this country to put rather more, rather less of a focus on the short-term needs of shareholders and a greater focus on a broader set of stakeholders beyond shareholders measured over a longer-term horizon. It's eight. I should stop. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening.